Five, four, three, two, one. I'm John Miglosh for the Wisconsin DMA and the International Society for Strategic Marketing. Yes, we fly by the seat of our pants very quickly, and that's the way it is. Okay, let's get over to the news. Uh, ad spending is up 56%, but one of the things I noticed in this article was, according to this, this is the standard media index, digital TV over... OOH, I don't know, radio, magazines, and newspapers. Mail isn't even mentioned. You know why? Because this is major media spend. Guess what? Mail isn't in there. People don't want to work, people don't buy direct mail through their, their ad agency. They buy it directly somehow, or they find a printer that can help them with their, with their work. So we're going to be talking about that today. But definitely, uh, you know, and it's and it makes a lot of sense. You know, I've worked for Gray Direct. I've worked for um, uh, Bazell and Jacobs. No, not really. Ron Jacobs, though, is a friend. I've worked with a lot of agencies, and most of them, you know, unless they're unless they really go as a direct agency, don't really know what they're doing in print. Because there's there's way more to it. It's like imagine if you didn't just have to place the TV ad and shoot the TV ad, but you had to run the TV station. <laughs> That's kind of what print is like. So let's move on. Okay, this was an interesting survey. How effective are sales reps in a virtual environment? I wondered about that. And, you know, it's impossible to read this. Um, and they they rank it by the strongest disagreement with the statement. What kind of a stupid graph is that? Sorry, uh, Tom Ferry, all copyrights reserved. You start with the one that's the most important agreement, right? Okay, so 37%, which isn't that high, uh, only a little more than the third said salespeople present professionally. At the same time, the lowest one, 25%, was salespeople are effective at handling adversity that is specific to virtual calls. I think what they're saying is that it's hard to run Zoom. I'm not sure, but anyway. So I didn't think much of that article either. Okay, more stuff B2B marketing needs to break. And uh, this is from Arad, Ardath Albi. And they were at Breakscht event hosted by Terminus. And I thought this was pretty interesting. And also it agrees with my narrative, so I thought I'd put it in here. <laughs> this is from Customer Think. Uh, first was, the first thing that, that the that the break stuff conference said was break the personalization assumption. Have I been saying that for decades? Absolutely. You know, my book, which you've all seen spinning strong to gold, it begins with the trade press in 1978 viewing with acclaim the, the cooperative project between farm journal magazine and RR Donnelly. Uh, selectronic bindery and what they were able to do is create a version of the magazine for uh, wheat farmers and another version for hog farmers and another version for cattle farmers and another version for you know whatever and they were able to raise their advertising rates because they were a little more targeted b2b right we're talking b2b today and uh, so the trade press w were like you know any minute now any minute now, we're going to have 
We're going to have complete personalization. Every magazine coming to your door will be personalized to you. Now, I do know for a fact, you know, if you ever wonder why Aaron Rodgers is on Sports Illustrated in Wisconsin, well, Drew Brees is on Sports Illustrated cover in, they used to make a big deal of who got on the cover. Now they put whoever's regional on the cover. So they have regional covers. It makes perfect sense. So there is some, I don't know if you can even call it personalization. You know, I never agreed with the term one-to-one marketing. I think marketing, by definition, is sort of the group of people you can tell basically the same story to. Okay? And so uh, in B2B, knowing their industry role is more important than knowing their shoe size. And you can actually decrease their purchase intent by 4% by mentioning stuff that they're not that into you know but if they've got a sailfish on the wall behind them talk fishing that's one of my rules i learned that early on in, in sales it also it does help to come to somebody's office we're going to get to that so perhaps we need to think more about understanding and helping than knowing a more personal stuff i agree we've we tried back in the early 80s to profile the buyer the buyer's uh, personality type. And we thought we could maybe tailor the marketing to that. But the truth is the buyer isn't the buyer. You know, the buyer just gathers the information. And so they tend to be very uh, clinical. Um, the buyer is probably some, you know, CEO or COO or something. And they they tend to be decision makers. High D, they call it in the in the PTSD, you know, that's so good. Okay, so you might not want to say, uh, as a CEO, you're challenged by X. Instead, you might want to say, in in our working in our work with CEOs, we're hearing X. That's why I like Amazon's famous phrase. I'm making it famous. If you never noticed it, most people get it wrong. Most people think that the items that also pop up when you go to Amazon say. You might also like, that's not what they say. What it says is people who bought X also bought. And the reason they do that partly was, was, was IT. When they began, they wanted to refer, they wanted to upsell other products. They didn't know which products to upsell. And many companies try to make this really, really scientific. But the truth is, it's not that scientific. You know, some days I go to the grocery store. What did I go to the grocery store for the other night? I don't know, steak sauce and spray whipped cream or something. You know, it, the combinations don't necessarily make any sense. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. You can take vast amounts of data, but that isn't what I'm coming for anyway. So your chances of guessing in a, in a 40,000 SKU grocery store what else I'm going to buy are nil. Just absolutely impossible. So... What Amazon did was they said, okay, when a book sells, this is back when they only sold books, when a book sells, whatever, if, if somebody buys two items, we'll put that second item in the hopper with that first item in its item record. And the next time somebody buys more than one item, we'll put that in. And if somebody buys five items right off the bat, we'll put all five of them in there and it'll be full. We don't have to do it anymore. We'll just do it once. When the item is new, We'll fill those bins of what else people bought with it. It doesn't matter if it makes any sense. We're not claiming it makes any sense. It's people who bought this also bought, which is true. And in large measure, they are related. Most of the time, most of them are. But that's how they did it. 
Okay, so anyway, another one that you have to be careful with, and my style consultant tells me this all the time. She says, just because you don't like it doesn't mean they won't like it. I, I featured a, uh, a clip from Emily in Paris where uh, they're talking about this highly provocative uh, perfume commercial. And the guy in the room says, oh, I like it. It's sexy. <laughs> and then uh, they ask Emily what she thinks. And Emily says, it doesn't matter what you think. It's what your customers think. Great line. One of the greatest lines ever. So be careful on that one. Always be careful, right? And your client will, will fall into the same trap. They'll say, you know, I really think you should do this. And you say, why? And they'll say, because I think everybody will love it. Well, sometimes you want to rethink that. Or as we say in direct marketing, test it. Let's test it. You know, and that's what Emily said. It was one of the great lines, like I said. She said, we can do a test. We can do a poll on Twitter. Is this sexy or sexist? Wonderful. I love that episode. It went downhill from there. I haven't watched it since, but it was ex excellent. Okay, break the illusion of control. You don't control your buyer. You can't tell them what they want to buy next. And people don't buy linear. You know, I worked on the, on the buying funnel in a lead qualification system. What... What was true in the 80s was we could control the information flow. <clears throat> we did control the information flow. So you might see an ad and you would, would circle a bingo card or you would call up or something and ask for more information. There wasn't a library you could go to for, you know, for specs on our equipment. Um, but there were things we had. We had product brochures. We had testimonials. We had, you know, other stuff. Or we could send you a sample like Newpig, like I talked about the other day. <clears throat> So we, the manufacturer, the ad agency or whatever, controlled the, the information flow. Not anymore. Now you can go all over the place, all over on the Internet, find all kinds of, especially bad information. So given that you know that you can't control it, what you have to do is be as available and helpful as possible. And, um, and I think keep the ball moving. I think that's something you can do. You can say, did you get everything you wanted? And tickler and follow-ups and those kinds of things are very effective because I'm busy and the CEO is busy and you might want to keep in touch. And that's one of the things I try hard to do is keep in touch with um, <laughs> with people out in the marketplace. So, Russ, if you're listening, I'm calling you today. <laughs> I got some big news for you. Okay. Break the campaign restraint, constraint. Well, yeah, I don't just do campaigns. Uh, spend time really getting to know and understand your buyers. That's important. And that brings up a classic because I don't think the sales call is dead. We're going to come back to that. We already talked about the virtual. So let's go over to YouTube for a second and watch one of the great classics of all time. I got a phone call this morning from one of our oldest customers. He fired us. After 20 years, he fired us, said he didn't know us anymore. I think I know why. We used to do business with a handshake, face to face. Now it's a phone call and a fax. Get back to you later with another fax, probably. Well, folks, something's got to change. That's why we're going to set out for a little face-to-face -face chat with every customer we have. But Ben, that's got to be over 200 cities. I don't care. 
something. If you're the kind of business that still believes personal service deserves no, a lot more than lip service, welcome to United. That's the way we've been doing business for over 60 years. Ben, where are you going? To visit that old friend who fired us this morning. United. Come fly the friendly skies. How about that? Phone. What do you know? Yeah, and there's still room for that. You know, we were having a meeting the other day uh, in person. And we, we, all, we all agreed there's something different about it. We're built for that. We're wired for tactile. Just, just, just the same things in your brain that make mail work also make face-to-face -face work. It's not the same on digital. It just isn't. And I think we've proven that with elementary education, haven't we? All the studies are saying it's not the same. The kids don't learn the same. They don't interact the same. It's not the same. So we want to keep that in mind. That's just my opinion. No, it isn't. It's bona fide, and a study says. And anytime you put that in front of a, 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 of a phrase, you know it's true. And so I wanted to talk about print sales a little bit. More stuff. Oops, five truths. Here we go. Five truths of post-pandemic printing industry. The first is targeting the right vertical markets is crucial to business success. Now, the author claims understanding how target markets are changing and the ability to adjust are crucial to business success. Those don't sound like differences. They really sound like the same, Barbara. Barbara's been working in the print industry for decades, she says. Uh, B2C versus B2B. Yeah, a lot of printing firms pivoted to B2C, and that made a lot of sense because the B2B didn't know where to mail stuff, and, and we've talked about that a bunch this week. Okay, pursuing inter industry segments that are stable. You know, uh, Jeff Taran, who uh, <laughs> wrote me back after yesterday, I didn't mention his full name, but now today I will. Jeff said he's working. He's seeing a lot of mail coming in in the financial and pharmaceutical industries, and that's where they're seeing a lot of growth, and so that went along with Barbara's article. Um, the old truth, great products and services, now great value. Very difficult to understand what value means to your customer. So it's worth asking that question. It's not, you know, everybody claims to have good products and services. What's the difference? What can you do that's different that will drive sales or understanding of the marketplace? What can make their job better? It concerns me that uh, I see this, and I've been seeing this since 1978, as I mentioned earlier in the show. Data is front and center while serving our customers. We waited a long time for a customer adaptation of variable data and personalized communications. Yeah, 1978, they've been promising it. My entire career, we've been promising that next time, man, we're gonna, it's going to be here. And the, and the printers have been investing in this technology for decades. And, and still, a very small percentage of their clientele and of their print jobs fully utilize this. Or... A, you know, the ones that are all in on it a very, are a very small percentage of total print, I have to say. Other than simple stuff like printing, you know, what did you buy next and what you might also like. Uh, and here's another scary one from Melanie. We work with clients on data modeling to identify high potential prospects. John Worth taught me, if there's lumps in the soup, any technique can find it. Any idiot can find their good customers. RFM. They, bought, they buy a lot, they buy often, they spend a lot. They bought recently. The key in modeling, I hate to sell, say this, Melanie, 
is who isn't likely to buy? Who shouldn't we be mailing to? And of the people who bought once, didn't buy much, and didn't, and haven't bought lately, how do you sort those out? Because that's most of them. Almost every client I've ever worked with had 60% of their file. So uh, out of 15 million customers, 9 million or so will be one-time buyers that haven't bought in the last three or four years. 9 million. Are there any in there worth mailing? Are there? Sure there are. You know, that's why Abacus has a leg up, I have to say, because they, they know who's still alive out of that group. That's a pretty important variable. But that doesn't tell you why they don't buy from you anymore. Those, figuring those things out are a big differential. And if you're a printer and you're going into modeling, you know, again, you might want to talk to somebody who's been doing it for 25 years. Omnichannel, mm, everybody talks about it. Not many people do it. I think printers, you know, I'm impressed with Andrew Ettinger uh, and some others that are combining print with email saying, you know, look for it in your mailbox um, if you have the email. Uh, I skipped an article on how to get email from uh, from consumers. One way is scare them. <laughs> I worked with a check printer that that started saying, "We've had some theft complaints. Would you like us to notify you when we've shipped your order so that you can watch for it and get it quickly out of the mailbox?" And it went from like 10% to 90% would give the, their email a good email. It's how you position it. Client demand for marketing automation through technology have increased post-pandemic. Okay, like I said, make sure there's value there because most of the time there isn't, as we said in the personalization segment just before this. Self-service, yeah, that's, you know, if you're a small printer, there's some really great uh, software as a service tools that you can plug in. Um, but on big, complicated jobs, that's, you know, they're still going to be big and complicated. Your clients prefer face-to-face -face new truth. Customers are embracing the efficiency of digital interactions with suppliers. Yeah, I'm not saying you can talk to everybody, but there's, there's a balance here somewhere, as I've been pointing out. Well, that's enough for this article. If you want the full text of any of these articles... Go to WDMA.org and subscribe. Uh, it's free, and you can go to the members-only page and get the show notes. Every show note, every article I talk about is always on here. Um, also, you can go there and register for the June 24th. We've already got some really stellar people from some big printers and some big agencies and some great players in the industry. You're going to learn a lot. You're going to have a lot of fun. That's kind of the motto of WDMA. Uh, Debbie Roth reminded me when when I re relaunched WDMA, she said, well, you you said, you know, we'd have a beer and we'd have and we talk direct marketing. And she said, I really like that approach. Yeah, it's not complicated. OK, so come. I'm not going to buy you beer. You have to bring your own beer because it's a virtual meetup. But register for June 24th and uh, it's in the upper it's in the upper corner where you register right over here. And look for it, and you'll see it. And um, that way, if there's any changes in, like, the Zoom link, which, you know, that stuff's flaky, we will notify you the day of so you don't miss it. Because that's our number one issue. As with salespeople, the, the hurdles of doing virtual meetings are substantial. Like, comment, 
and share. I didn't see any comments today, and that might be because my system's not working. Uh, but anyway, I love your comments. Have a great day. Go direct mail. Bye-bye.